spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. Hello and welcome to the 136th annual Subliminal Deception Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory. Bullshit, my name is Cody, I'm joined by my pal Phil, how are you? Doing uh, doing alright buddy, how about yourself? Uh, not too bad, we actually um, got the first snowfall of the year, let's see, was it Tuesday or Monday? One of the, t- I think it was Monday, Oh, I wasn't ready for it Phil. Yeah, well I mean it is December. So I know that's it sounds terrible. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, apparently the uh, weather terrorists are predicting a big boy coming on Friday, actually the day this releases. So maybe it is here. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But uh, I am i don't know if I'm ready for that either. Man, the first yeah. even the first snowfall, it was like, oh, God, it was like five degrees out and really windy. You know when yeah. it feels like just needles on your face? Yeah, no, I remember those fucking just shitty days. We actually kind of had a same, like a similar thing. Today, it was actually cold enough to wear your coat on your way to your car after work as it was like the way in. So that's kind of, we're going through the same thing almost. <laughs> Very similar. Uh, yeah. Phil, Phil, I hear you have uh, you have a delightful story for us here. Yeah, well, I wanted to go off on a little rant. You know, I got a little bit of a beef to, you know, hash out. <laughs> but the uh, the restaurant Chipotle, so after their uh, their big, you know, their big mess they had a couple years ago, they've been really good since I've been living in Arizona. And so I've been going there, you know, uh, like probably once a month, maybe twice a month. I decided to actually go there. I hadn't been there in quite a while, but I had actually gone to Target. And I was going to one that I don't usually go to. Uh, I walk in there and there's a, you usually see like younger people working at Chipotle, right? Yeah. At this one, there was a, a, she was, she was a bit older than like her coworkers were, which, you know, it's not weird for, you know, fast food restaurants, but I got up to the counter and I realized she wasn't really old. She was just extremely weathered, kind of like how like a, homeless person in their mid forties, early fifties looks, you know? Okay. okay. She didn't age gracefully. No, she did not age gracefully at all, but I mean, it's not that big of a deal. So she was scooping out my food, everything, you know, it was still, it's, it's the same restaurant, you know, shouldn't be anything different. The problem is when she got to the sour cream, basically she picked up the, the spoon for the sour cream and this big congealed chunk of like old sour cream fell off. And the sour cream that was left that she poured onto my burrito was like, it looked like 2% milk, like that really almost clear kind of milk look on it. So what you're saying here is maybe this Chipotle could use someone watching (laughs) the food a bit closer because, yeah, that seems like a pretty telltale sign that the uh, sour cream is no longer good. 
What about the rest yeah. of the ingredients? Well, I mean, the steak looked good. Uh, everything else looked fine. But she went to go get more sour cream. And I said, no, no, you know, no more. Like, I asked her, I was like, you saw that, right? And she just looked down. She's like, oh. And he's like, that's the sound that came out of her mouth. And I said, you know what? Never mind. I thought, you know, when I get home, I'll just pour some of my own sour cream on it. Basically, she moved it over. And I didn't realize how messy the table was until she folded up my burrito. And there were little bits of, like, other food and tin foil that was folding in the burrito. So I stopped her again and I was like, whoa, whoa, would you mind picking the, the little pieces of tin foil off? And she looks, she kind of like rolls it over and looks at it. She's like, Oh, thanks. I was like, I'm not doing it for your benefit. You know, I'm supposed to be eating this in a couple of minutes, basically just, and you know, my biggest pet peeve in the world when it comes to fucking Chipotle, she was a terrible rap nearly like half the fucking ingredients came out around the side and she just folded it into the bottom of the burrito like against the fold so it just looked fucking terrible basically i should have walked out i don't know why i didn't it's probably because i worked in restaurants and before and i i hate doing that or you know talking to the manager that kind of thing yeah so basically it sounds like she she was uh kind of cashed out of the job maybe not yeah. uh Maybe just was sick of Chipotle. Honestly, the last time I was at Chipotle, I didn't have a great experience. And that was many, many, many months ago. And when I was eating it, it was like I, nothing seemed fresh. And yeah. the the rice was hard. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't. I think I'm done with Chipotle. I'll go to Qdoba if I need. I, I prefer Qdoba. I think it's better. I don't never been to a Qdoba, but I do know that it depends on which one you go to and the time of day. Like if you catch the rice before they change out the rice, then it's going to be really dried out. So if you go there at like three or four o'clock before they change it out for the dinner rush, then it's going to be dried out. But I got home and I opened it up and it just because I was going to rewrap it and it just looked like shit. And I just thought about it. I was like, all right, it was only like eight dollars. I can, you know, I can afford losing $8, but I can't afford being fucking food poisoned for three days. Yeah. You know, I have work tomorrow. So I just threw it away and decided to go to somewhere else. So I basically just went a, like half a block from my house as my normal Chipotle. The thing I figured out is this one's actually by a Barnes and Nobles and not a Target. So it's actually a clean one. And I go in there and the place is fucking spotless. The kid wraps my burrito up tighter than a nun on fucking Easter Sunday. So, you know, it's going to be good if the dude actually knows what he's fucking doing. <laughs> and there was all young people working in there. So, well, it sounds like bright eyed and bushy tailed. Well, I, it sounds like that other Chipotle could possibly use some better management is what I am guessing. Or even the owner. I think they're franchises. So, yeah, somebody there needs to maybe even a health inspector. I don't know. Yeah. A health uh, inspector would be good because just <laughs> they can't have her working there. <laughs> yeah, she she might uh, not have an en have been enjoying her employment at Chipotle, or maybe her not. boss is a dick. You know, a lot of people uh, get that way when their bosses are dicks. No, I think they're having a hard time finding workers, so I think mm. they may have may have laxed on there because the other people who were working there didn't seem to care. The, the chick who was taking the money at the counter was watching her make it and didn't seem to give a fuck. So, huh. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I guess just go to place that you know is uh, is good then. Well, anyway, Phil, uh, are you ready for this week's episode? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. This week, we are going to be covering the death of a politician, which at first glance appears to be nothing more than a freak accident. But upon closer inspection, it appears that there are just a few elements that kind of make you uh, raise your eyebrows a little bit and add to the fact that his death led to an event that would shape the U.S.'s recent history. It became a breeding ground for conspiracy. Now, outside of this guy, you can obviously see this guy's name. Can you recall any uh, death of a politician or political figure that changed the world a little bit? Uh, I would have to say... RFK, closely followed by JFK. A lot of people would like kind of like, you know, take a second glance at that. But I think that because RFK was going to be like a big change to the presidency and he never got the chance to be the president. I do believe he would have won, basically. Okay. All right. Well, uh, obviously we've covered RFK, not JFK. That one... That one might deserve honors of like a 200th episode or something like that. Yeah, definitely. It was, I mean, it would also be great going off of this episode, doing the what ifs, like what people think might've happened. That'd be kind of cool. But yeah, I mean, JFK, uh, the big thing obviously was all of the things that LBJ was able to do uh, for like civil rights and for just all of those things, basically in the the post JFK assassination time period. So his was also a big, big death and a big change. You'd, uh, you'd wonder if JFK would have did the same thing as far as civil rights go. Well, that's the thing is a lot of people think, so he was a little bit more skittish, uh, because it was his first term and because he was trying to get election, you know, trying to win his election. He was actually kind of, you know, pumping the brakes on a lot of that stuff that the civil rights, activists wanted him to do so uh and also lyndon johnson was kind of like a really big person in congress and he was able to hammer a lot of that stuff through so interesting okay yeah well uh the gentleman in question on today's episode was senator paul wellstone of minnesota but before we get balls deep into the details of his death let's first learn a little bit about mr paul wellstone Paul David Wellstone was born on July 21st, 1944 in Washington, D.C. to Ukrainian Jewish immigrants named Leon and Minnie Wellstone. Interestingly, due to the high amount of anti-Semitism his father had experienced in the 1930s, he had actually changed his last name from Wexelstein to Wellstone. So he kind of, that's really sad that he had to do that to hide his, you know, religious belief there. Yeah, that's, I mean, a lot of that happened. Um, if you listen to Crime and Sports or, you know, Small Town Murder, they talk a lot about how basically when a lot of the people who immigrated to the U.S. would come off the boat, their last name would kind of be like phonetically or Americanized, you know, changed because of the guy who wrote down their name when they heard it. So well, he did it strictly so yeah. people would know he was Jewish. But uh, but yeah, yeah I thought, this, that I, also happened too. Yeah, I I, uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. 
Now, Paul was raised in Arlington, Virginia, and would go on to attend Wakefield Public School and Yorktown High School, finally graduating in 1962, after which he would then attend the University of North Carolina for a degree in political science. When you hear University of North Carolina nowadays, you perhaps think of their stellar basketball program. But Paul Wellstone actually got a scholarship for his wrestling skills. Paul was such a prolific wrestler, he became the undefeated champion of the Atlantic Coast Conference, or ACC as it's more commonly known, but that is pretty sweet. And I, you wouldn't picture a senator being an undefeated college wrestling champion. No, you wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, hearing that someone's a stellar athlete coming out of North Carolina, you'd assume that maybe he played like shooting guard or point guard, something like that. Not that he was a uh, you know, champion wrestler. But Isn't this where um, Michael Jordan went? Yes, it is. And, and Patrick Ewing, right? Patrick Ewing went to Georgetown. Georgetown, okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah he, he was the player who looked older than his head coach at Georgetown. <laughs> he, he looked like he was in his mid-50s when he was, you know, 19. Yeah, he wasn't exactly, you know, he had a face only a mother could love, to be honest with <laughs> you. Yeah. But, Great uh, basketball player. Oh, but, amazing yeah. basketball player. The thing is, like, I'm mostly a football guy. Uh, North Carolina hasn't been good in a long time as far as football goes. I only know him from basketball, and I don't even really watch it. Yeah, well, the thing about um, college sports is a lot of these college programs can only put their eggs in so many. They only have so many eggs to go around in the baskets. So North Carolina, obviously, a lot of theirs goes into their basketball program. Um, right. The thing is, the ACC's kind of gone downhill in football over the past few years, minus Clemson. So they have actually competed uh, recently for ACC championships. I just always think about uh, the Bears drafting Mitch Trubisky from North Carolina, and he is dog shit. Ooh. Yes, he is. <laughs> yeah. Compared to us, he's really good, but yeah. Yeah. Player. yeah. <laughs> uh, during his freshman year in college, he would go on to marry... Sheila Eisenwellstone, whom sadly, as we'll find out, will die alongside of Paul. Paul would officially graduate with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science degree in 1965. He would continue his education until earning a PhD in Political Science. After earning his PhD, he would accept a job teaching Political Science at Carleton College located in Northfield, Minnesota. Now, uh, Phil probably doesn't know where Northfield is. I don't even know if I've ever even been there, but it's probably about, from the Twin Cities limits, it's probably about a half an hour south. Uh, if you go farther, you'll end up in Faribault. I don't know if you've ever heard of that place. Uh, I think I have heard of it. Um, is it in between the cities in Rochester? Uh no, it's the other way. It, oh, I thought you said it's south of the Twin Cities. It is. Like, if because the Twin Cities is kind of shaped like a giant oval. If oh, you were okay. to go, gotcha. so, it would be southwest out of it. Like, basically, if you, from I was just looking at a map, uh, 35, right? Famous 35. Yeah. Uh, you can follow that south 
and you go through Northfield, and then you'll go through Faribault. Gotcha. So you're kind of heading out of the hills and into the farmland. Yeah. The Iowa part of Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, basically. So it's it's a nice little uh, nice little town. Um, so it's it it always seems weird to me, especially after reading this, that somebody studied political science their whole college career didn't do anything except for immediately start teaching it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people do that with uh like i mean especially if you earn your doctorate any college like at carlton college not a huge university they're probably gonna you know kind of sweep this guy up they can get him on the cheap you know right uh he's not tenured they can make him teach a lot of shitty political science like <laughs> first year classes that's a big thing too is having these young teachers making them teach all of the freshmen coming in all of the shitty, ah. you know all the shitty classes that the tenured guys don't want to and girls don't want to do so, well, I guess that you probably have to cut your teeth uh, in the, in that profession, I imagine, right? Yeah, you suppo- take what you can get. Yeah, pay the bills. So, <laughs> they're very true. Now, the interesting thing about Paul Wellstone after he became a professor is that he really got involved in some activist movements, which actually led to him getting into a bit of trouble. In 1970, he would be arrested for protesting the Vietnam War at the Federal Office Building in Minneapolis. In 1984, Paul was arrested for trespassing during a foreclosure protest at a bank. In 1985, Paul Wellstone joined a picket line with striking workers at the Hormel Meatpacking Plant in Austin, Minnesota. Home of spam. What's that? Home of spam. Is it? Yeah, I think you are right. Uh, It's the home of... Not great meats. Uh, there's <laughs> meats there. I don't know if they're great meats. Now, the thing that was interesting about the Hormel packing thing in 1985, it got so big, they had to call in the National Guard just to block the protesters so the Hormel uh, meat packing plant could allow the scabs to come in. Yeah, I imagine a, a meatpacking plant, especially one that big. I do believe I've been to Austin, Minnesota, and I've, I think I have seen it. Um, it's a huge plant. So I guess if you have scabs come in, they probably had a shit ton of, you know, striking workers outside. And if it brought in a bunch of, you know, these uh, activist protesters from all around Minnesota, then, yeah, I, I guess it would get pretty big. Um, yeah, that's uh I'm pretty sure Minnesota is that more of a like a pro union state rather than a like pro like like a Wisconsin is a right to work state. So I think they're kind of like the opposite of Wisconsin in that regards. Well, the Minnesota does have right to work laws in place, but I would say they used to be a very big union uh place like Adam uh my old co-host on Bumblebutt, his family had a pretty big, like, history of working at the Union stockyards when they were okay. when they were very big in uh, in St. Paul. So, yeah, mm. I would say if people had an option, they certainly probably would rather be in a union. Um, but, but yeah, that's uh, it's hard to say. They're not. Minnesota's definitely way more liberal than Wisconsin is. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of terrible jobs, working in a St. Paul stockyard, that does not sound good. 
No, no, it doesn't. They're all closed down now for the most part. So, <laughs> yeah, not doing. You can many... tell by the smell of the of the city that <laughs> yeah. they're all closed down. <laughs> now, what I find, uh, as we're about to find out here, um, Paul, I don't, I didn't know that much about him. Uh, I, we would have both been pretty, pretty young and probably not paying attention when he died. But he seems like one of the few politicians that actually cares about the downtrodden people or tries to stand up for what he believes is the right thing to do. You don't really see that too often. No, you don't. Not anymore. It's, I mean, people claim to be, but a lot of it's kind of like posturing and really trying to elevate their own, um, you know, political standing. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I think Paul, if he wouldn't have died, like he could have, he would have been, he just seems like, a Minnesota senator. You know, I don't know how else to describe. He just seems like that. I do believe that he was kind of starting to push through to the national stage. Yes, he is. So, we'll uh, we'll yeah. talk about that. Yeah, I think I remember at the time um, he was constantly, everyone would always talk about, I believe in the, like when Gore was running for president, I believe they wanted to tap him for like secretary of like agriculture or something like that. One of those jobs he was, uh, they were talking about getting him in like something like that. Right. Yep. I will, uh, I will fill you in on that. Um, okay. Yeah. Now, while he was at Carleton college during the seventies and into the eighties, Paul began community organizing for the poor and disenfranchised communities he would focus the organization known as Better Rice County, which Rice County is essentially Northfield and all of that. I kind of looked it up in modern times. It's about 70,000 people, so mm. it's not v- real big, but it's it's okay. Now, his group aimed to improve public housing, affordable health care, improved public education, free school lunches, and a publicly funded daycare center. His focus a lot was trying to help out single parents. That seemed to be one of the main things that he he liked to focus his efforts on. I don't know if maybe I, it didn't really say anything about his parents if they were single parents or something, but he seemed to be really invested in that. Now, interesting. Now, interestingly, all of his activism actually ended up getting him fired from Carleton College. Uh, the trustees viewed him as a black eye for them, kind of staining their image at the college. Yeah. But it was actually his students who came to his aid. They protested, and the trustees, feeling like they didn't have anything, uh, you know, any other place to turn, they actually hired him back. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's good for good for the kids to, you know, get their, you know. Seems like a. It's kind of a funny thing because. They fired him because he was a like a black guy on their institution. Carleton College, no one's ever fucking heard of this, probably outside of Minnesota. And he he goes on to become like a, you know, really important, really well-liked senator who, you know, died before his time, obviously, we'll get into. But it's kind of funny, like the turnaround. I was also going to say fighting for a publicly funded daycare center in like small towns would be huge because it's really hard. I remember... um a lot of people who like were trying to get, uh, you know, babysitting or daycare 
in small towns. It's really hard because there aren't any like big ones. It's all pretty much, you know, some chick who has her own kids and she takes care of other kids on the side too. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. I've never really thought of that. I didn't, uh, I had a babysitters, but I didn't have, I didn't ever go to a daycare or anything. Well, you had your you had your grandma living across the street from the school, so yes. When we got old enough to like kind of take care of ourselves, but like, uh, God, when I was, I think up till seven or eight, I had a babysitter. I remember I had like three or four different ones, so they must have kept not working out. But <laughs> <laughs> you probably, <laughs> I can imagine a young Cody possibly setting maybe the living room curtains on fire or something like that. Possibly, I don't know. They never told me. But <laughs> <laughs> now, Paul Wellstone's first attempt at jumping into politics began in 1982 when he ran as the Democratic candidate for Minnesota State Auditor. Uh, Unfortunately, his first attempt, he would lose that race. He would try again in 1986, but would eventually drop out due to his mother's failing health. Um, Even though he could never secure a position as the state auditor, he remained active with the Democratic Party of Minnesota. In 1999, he would run for a seat in the U.S. Senate, against incumbent Rudy Boschwitz. Now, Rudy was able to outspend Paul nearly 7-1 to one in his campaign. Paul's a lot like, I hate to say this, but I think he's kind of like Bernie Sanders where he's like, I'll just do the grassroots kind of thing. Paul yeah. was big into that. I guess, really, Paul, if you really think about it, he was kind of like Bernie Sanders during this time. I don't know what Bernie Sanders is doing. Obviously, Bernie's like 95 years old, but uh, yeah. you know you know what I mean? I was going to ask, uh, Rudy Boschwitz, uh, his, his election against him, was this a primary campaign or was he like the Republican? Was he going against, was this the main election? Uh, I'm pretty sure this is the main election. Okay. And he was the incumbent, so he probably had a ton of money behind him, a ton of support already. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, which means he signed his soul over long ago. So, <laughs> now Paul Wellstone, even being a severe underdog, was able to pull out the victory in this case. One of the leading factors in his victory, now, this is honestly really fucked up, um, was that supporters of Rudy Boschwitz during the, you know, election and the campaign started sending letters around Minnesota's Jewish communities calling calling Paul a, quote, bad Jew for marrying a Gentile woman and not raising his children under the Jewish faith. So having them done that, that really hurt him bad because you can't start mailing letters to the synagogues and saying, don't vote for him. He's a bad Jew. He married a Christian woman. Like, you can't do that. Yeah, I mean, those kind of tactics were kind of falling out of favor around the 90s. That's kind of the old school, dirty politics way of doing things. Nixon I mean, now style. they're now they're back up with the internet. You yeah. Know? You can you can pretty much for a, on the cheap, you can uh you can badmouth somebody and you know have it come from somebody else. So Right. 
Right. It's I. <laughs> we're not done with the mudslinging here. Uh, yeah. Now, when Paul was the incumbent, he would run again, obviously, in 1996 against Rudy Boschwitz. Rudy wasn't given up quite yet. Uh, this time, Rudy decided to step up his mudslinging by running a bunch of attack ads accusing Paul Wellstone of being, quote, embarrassingly liberal and, quote, Senator Welfare. Rudy also started a rumor that Paul was a big supporter of burning the U.S. flag. Uh, that's a straight-up Nixon move right there. Yes. But nobody bought it. Paul would once again defeat Rudy Boschwitz. Paul Wellstone really tried to help out the poorer communities around Minnesota, and he became a huge activist for better treatment of veterans. This is fascinating to me because he's very anti-war, but obviously the people who had to go to war, he wants to help improve their life. This, I mean, honestly, the battle with veterans, treatment for veterans is still a very messy subject in the United States. Yeah, especially, you know, uh, 25 years on from this, it was bad enough. Um, they they were starting to have some of the veterans of the first Gulf War, um, you know, and that was getting to be kind of a big deal. But then we just had two wars, 20 years. There's so many veterans. I was going to say this was around the time of Newt Gingrich, uh, the Republicans starting to take control of both houses of Congress. They were kind of really running hard against a lot of the uh, a lot of the bad behavior of Bill Clinton and trying to paint a lot of Democrats as like being cut from the same yoke kind of situation. Yeah. So everyone was mudslinging was really ramped up. Well, this okay. time. so uh, Bush senior, right? Did he like hated Paul because he was very outspoken against the Gulf war. Um, <laughs> Paul, uh, Bush senior did not like him because of that. Okay. So, yeah, I imagine, well, if he won in 1990, that means that he caught the second half of Bush Sr.'s first or first and only presidential run. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can see that, uh, especially not liking someone who's so liberal. Um, probably, let's see, 1996. I'm trying to remember when the big takeover, if it was midterms 1998 or if it was in 1996. But I do know that eventually um, the both both Congresses were lost to the Republicans by the Democrats. I um, I think that I think that was in it must have been ninety six because that was ninety six somewhere in there because I remember towards the end of Clinton's term or last term he that was a big thing they controlled everything. Well, yeah, they almost impeached him. He he wasn't impeached because of one vote in the Senate. So, uh, sometimes things just never change. Do they basically? Yeah, <laughs> that was, uh, God, I can't believe how long ago that was, but I know. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, so after being elected to his second term in the Senate, uh, Paul would decide to try his hands at becoming the democratic nominee for president in the 2000 election, but would ultimately decide against it claiming that he didn't have the stamina that's required to go on a national campaign. One of the biggest reasons for this was because at the time, Paul thought he had a nagging wrestling injury, right? It, 
sports athlete like him, that's probably what you would think it is. But yep. the uh, pain he was experiencing was actually because he had a mild form of multiple sclerosis. So Ooh. that is uh, some rough news to hear. But again, I mean, I guess at least it was a milder case. But uh, but yeah, that is he thought all these years something was wrong with his hip and he thought it was a wrestling injury. And here he had MS. Yeah, you see a lot of uh, well, I mean, growing up in Iowa, a lot of the like my dad's friends who were old wrestlers, you saw them. They kind of had this weird gaunt in their walk and it's from wrestling. They had all, they all had bad knees, bad hips, bad ankles just from, you know, doing all that stuff. So yeah, I could see how he would think that, but multiple sclerosis, I would rather have nagging wrestling injuries than any form of multiple sclerosis. Yeah. It's a nasty, nasty disease. My, uh, my aunt has it. Um, yeah, but she, she's, uh, she's had it for quite a long time. She's doing okay. But mm. yeah, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't want it. Hopefully, one day they'll be able to figure out something to do with it. Now, one last fascinating thing about Paul Wellstone was he was actually involved with something that would become known as the Wellstone Amendment, which was a- attached to the McCain-Fengold bill, which went after campaign finance reform. Before I finish this here. I'm going to assume that's John McCain, but I didn't look up to be sure. Yes, it is John McCain. McCain-Feingold bill. It was a bipartisan effort to try to curb campaign finance. Um, Kind of like the, basically what you could call it was fraud that was happening. Uh, Because at the time, this was before Citizens United, the decision to basically allow corporations to give as much money as they want through super PACs. Yeah. This was an effort to curb the amount of interest or money or influence, whatnot, that these large groups had in giving unlimited money to these campaigns. So it kind of like it dropped the spending down, basically. So. That was the main part. Now, Paul Wellstone, what he attached to it was basically um, would block certain nonprofit groups such as the NRA, the Sierra Club, the Christian Christian Coalition, and other obviously extreme right-wing uh, propaganda there. Uh, his bill wouldn't allow them to spend more than $5,000 per individual on campaign ads. So, uh, yeah, that would be a fantastic world we live in if those fuckers couldn't uh, put ads on TV anymore, political ads anywhere, anyway. But like you said, Phil, that was the law. But in 2010, that got taken away and all them bullshit ads are back and the corporations can now just funnel money to whoever they want. Oh, yeah. And the money's just as dirty as it's ever been. Absolutely. So it's it's basically, yeah. So with with a lot of the way that it was going, we were doing a lot to curb kind of like runaway spending on campaigns. Citizens United happened and all of a sudden it just completely boomeranged back at worse than it had ever been. And now these campaigns are getting into millions and millions of dollars uh, campaign ads on everything. You can't get away from them now. So. Oh, uh, dude, election season, uh, don't even turn on the fucking TV. I, I, oh, yeah. In America, don't turn on that TV. It is a nightmare. And what a lot of people don't know is some of this money is going towards uh, basically these like 
internet whiz kids, like these young young people going in there and kind of acting like they're influencers and pushing through. They're basically ads. I'm like, say it's Instagram. They're basically ads, but they don't look like ads because they kind of gear them looking more like a post. Like people actually believe this stuff. Yeah. And that's on both sides. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They <laughs> they all take too much. Honestly, if, if it was my decision, I'd be like, grassroots or nothing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we don't need fucking Walmart or Taco Bell or whatever giving people a shitload of money. Yeah, the problem is once you once you get a little a little lick of that dirty money, it's kind of hard to put down the spoon. Very you know? true. That it, <laughs> that is very true. Especially when they own you now. Right. So, right. Know. All right. Now, Paul would run for his third term on the U.S. Senate in 2002 against Norm Coleman, former mayor of St. Paul, and in the previous election was a supporter of Paul Wellstone, but for some reason Norm Norm Coleman decided to join the Republican Party. Now, this particular seat during the 2002 election was very, very important because whichever side won would ultimately gain control of the Senate and this is kind of the part of the story where the death of Paul Wellstone kind of and the series of events that follows kind of makes us uh, scratch your head a little bit. And honestly, towards the end of this, Phil, I will genuinely be very curious how you feel about it. I don't want to spoil uh, what comes after his death quite yet. Maybe some people can guess it. but uh, But yeah, this is a... This is a very turbulent time in in the United States in the year 2002. 9-11 had just happened a year prior. Uh, Phil and I were sophomores in high school. We had probably just gotten our license. It was it was dangerous out there. Tearing up the back roads. <laughs> in the Cavalier, in the Pontiac fucking G, Pontiac actually, 6000. Actually, yeah. did I have my license yet? I don't remember. You definitely would have. 2002, you would have been 16. Um, yeah, I. Uh, you would have. You would have been 16 in two months. So. Yeah, I don't even think I'd. We'd started working at Mabes yet. No, not until that summer. Yeah, it was a wild year. Uh, but uh, but anyway, the date was October 25th, 2002. It was a mere 11 days before the election for the U.S. Senate seat was set to take place. Paul, along with seven others, which included his wife, Sheila, one of their three children named Marcia, uh, two pilots and the campaign staffers, Mary McEvoy, Tom Lepic, and William McLaughlin departed from the St. Paul airport in a Beechcraft King Air A-100. This is apparently a very... A uh, popular plane with not only senators but also drug smugglers. So that yes. was kind of interesting. Uh, every every single uh, like cartel documentary here. Oh yeah, we uh the Beechcraft. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they were all headed for Evelith to attend the funeral of Martin Rukavina, father of Tom Rukavina, who is elected was an elected f- official for the Minnesota House of Representatives. There's a little connection there. They would depart early in the morning, expecting to arrive at 
Evelith, Virginia Municipal Airport at around 10 a.m. According to Gary Ullman, who is the assistant manager at that airport, he said he briefly heard the pilot's voice come over the communications and saw that he had turned on the landing lights, but the plane would never come to land. After some time passed, Ullman jumped into a plane of his own and decided to go search for them. This is what I find is very interesting. I couldn't really find the exact details. He says that he saw the landing lights come on, but it almost makes it seem like, can they tell when a plane hits a button on their end and is like, okay, they're getting ready to land without physically seeing the plane? I don't know. It sounds like it's kind of a smaller airport. I imagine he would have seen them come in. They have to have some kind of radar if it's an airport in 2002. Um, if he's in the tower, he's probably getting a, you know, a good sight of all of the planes coming in. Um, obviously if he's the assistant manager of the airport, he's pretty seasoned. So I'm guessing that he just knows what to look for, for, you know, it's procedure basically. It's all in the, it's all the same. It all happens the same every time, you know, if they're professional pilots. See, I wasn't sure if like in the plane, they can hit something that not only turns on the plane's landing lights, but also sends a signal to the command center that, hey, we're going to come land. I couldn't really tell, but you're probably like, he probably just saw the lights, perhaps. Well, they should be in, in once you get close to the airport, you should be in communication with ground crew, uh, with the tower, you know. Yeah, as we find out, um, he heard a little chatter, didn't really say what they told him, but that's the last they heard of him. So, again, okay. starts off a little suspicious here. Uh, Ullman would eventually find the crashed plane roughly about two miles from the Evelith airport. The plane was completely engulfed in flames. In fact, it was still burning five hours after the rescue crew was finally able to get near the wreckage because they did crash in a heavily wooded area. So it took some time to get there. Mm. Obviously, everyone aboard the plane was uh, killed. Now, the reason for the crash that didn't make a whole lot of sense was because although it was roughly 31 degrees and there was, you know, fog and a light snow, there wasn't anything abnormal that would have made it difficult for the pilots to be able to either see the, you know, landing strip or just even land at the airport. In this weather, any pilot should have been able to land so initially after discovering the craft they're like this doesn't make any sense because they shouldn't have had any problem at all landing this and somehow they crashed two miles from the airport and there's no like SOS there's no anything they just they just are crashed there um any theories before I get into some of the theories that have been tossed around now yeah it is a little odd it's not like the pilots, um, it's not like there was a heavy fog and the pilots undershot the runway and, you know, crashed beforehand. Basically, if the the tower was able to see the, the airplane and the landing lights, then the pilots should have been able to at least visually know that they were over the airport. Yeah. So it's a little weird. And um, like I said before, they should have been in like communication with the plane and ground crew. There should have been back and forth going on. Yeah. So it's a little odd. This 
and really, as we'll find out at the end of this, um, still no definitive answer on why they crashed, honestly. So we'll, we'll kind of start out, everyone's thinking, uh, maybe the pilots were under some sort of substance. They tested both of the pilots. Uh, they were completely drug and alcohol free. Uh, they thought maybe the plane had been overtaken by ice, you know, Minnesota, that could happen. But that was quickly ruled out as even being remotely possible at all. Uh, the FBI was actually brought in to investigate for foul play, which in itself is kind of foul play because of, as we'll find out, how fast they actually um, <laughs> came to the scene. Now, Paul Wellstone, prior to the crash, had been receiving an abnormally high amount of death threats. That was, number one, why the FBI was kind of interesting. Uh, after they kind of did their inspection of the wreckage and all of that, the FBI just released their ruling that this was completely accidental. But in 2010, during the Freedom of Information Act and all of that, uh, it became public information that the FBI had actually been tracking Paul Wellstone dating way back to the 1970s when he was involved in the protests. So they'd been watching him for quite some time. Why were they watching him like that? Well, you remember our episode on Cointelpro. Yeah. So they were basically anyone who was, you know, getting big into the activist scene and especially coming out of J. Edgar Hoover's um, FBI. There was a, you know, anyone who was protesting anything was kind of seen as a, you know, dirty communist sympathizer or, you know, uh, you know, someone like a, like a rabble rouser, that kind of deal. So they were, I can imagine if he became big enough in like the Minnesota, you know, protest scene, I can imagine that they started, you know, looking into him. Tracking him. I yeah, know they at least they, having a file on people. Even when he was a senator, I think there's records they were tapping his phones as well. Um, so I don't know. They had an abnormally high amount of interest in him. Uh, I guess the FBI always kind of probably watches elected officials at least from a distance. But uh, but yeah. So so far we they've ruled out that ice could have caused the crash. They've ruled out that there was drugs or alcohol involved. They've ruled out, and the FBI doesn't even really give an explanation outside of they just think it was an accident. So yeah. they're Pilot kind of error. yeah, basically. Uh, eventually, the National Transportation Safety Board uh, began conducting their own investigation and gave what they conclude is the most likely reason for the crash. Now, I think this explanation in itself seems very weird. They claimed it all revolved around a device known as the v VOR or VHF Omnidirectional Range, which was a navigation beacon used by airports. Apparently, the Elvinth uh, Virginians airport had malfunctioned and instructed them to land about a mile south of the airport. Because of the fog, they, I guess were coming down for a landing or something or whatever. And they just, just crashed right there. Cause they thought they were landing the plane. Um, does this seem weird to you? It seems like they would have noticed that they were coming down <laughs> on a forest. Yeah. Um, even with kind of thicker fog, 
I mean, they said that the fog was pretty white and you, that the guy went up in his plane and he was able to find pretty easily that plane burning in the forest. So I don't know. The fog didn't sound like it was that thick. If, it's just, if he was able to see them from the ground, their running light or their landing lights. So I don't really see, even if the computer is telling you to land in the forest, I'm pretty sure you see, well, that's not the runway. Yeah. You know? It's very weird. It's very strange that that's just like their definitive explanation. Um, it's, I, I don't know. I just, I, it just seems very weird to me. Like, uh, why was that thing telling him to land there? I don't know. It's just very strange. Now, okay. One important factor after the death of Paul Wellstone was that obviously the election was right around the corner. It was 11 days away. Yep. And Paul, being that he was now deceased, could no longer be the candidate for the Democratic Party. So they had to quickly rush and put a new candidate on the ballot. And that candidate would be Walter Mondale. But putting the new candidate on the ballot had dire results because he would eventually lose to Norm Coleman, thus giving the Republican Party complete control of the Senate. So this is... This is kind of the start of where uh, maybe some conspiracy starts to bubble above the surface here. Yeah. So also there was a situation where at the funeral for Paul Wellstone, um, then Governor Jesse Ventura, actually, he was so sickened by kind of the the Democrats um, fervor for like still campaigning during a funeral. He got up and left in disgust. And that actually really hurt Walter Mondale in that election because everyone was sickened by kind of, you know, their rhetoric. Their behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I would be too, honestly. Uh, We know Jesse, uh, he should be the forefather of conspiracy theories, but he was a great governor, but he, unfortunately, I think, I don't know if he has CTE or what's going on, (laughs) but man, he is off the fucking rocker. Uh, Something happened to him. Well, he's a former Navy SEAL, former pro wrestler. So, yeah, some a little CTE, you know. Hey, don't forget action movie star. Yes, he was also an action <laughs> movie star. Yeah. Now, where the root of the conspiracy lies and why the death of Paul Wilson starts to look incredibly suspicious is not only the timing, but what happened after his death. As mentioned earlier, uh, it was well known, Paul, big anti-war guy, and his re-election to the Senate meant that when George W. Bush and Dick Cheney wanted to invade Iraq, uh, it was going to be likely shot down. They had tried earlier, and Paul had voted against it ar- already prior to the the upcoming election. And because Norm Coleman was re- elected, the Republicans gained full control of the Senate, and they this way they were able to gain the necessary votes to be able to invade Iraq in search of what we know now as non-existent weapons of mass destruction. So there is where it kind of gets a little suspicious because some people are like, well, did they kill them so they could invade Iraq? And we already know how suspicious specifically Dick Cheney is. Um, so it kind of makes you wonder. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, Dick Cheney, even if you're his best friend, you got to watch out for, you know, stray <laughs> bird shot coming your way. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, I mean, 
it is kind of a stretch that they would actually kill a senator and get away with it. But if you did have the FBI, you know, on your side for that, um, you would think though that if it it did happen, there would be a lot more stuff coming out about it, like right now. Like, right. Well, you would you would think that the you know the the tree would shake out eventually. Defense contracts, man. They uh, it's a lot of money in that, and. Yeah. Every, the funny thing is everyone thought that war would be about oil. No, oil had nothing to do with that. It was those sweet fucking contracts. Yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. Like you said, it is a stretch, but it does kind of is like kind of weird. Um, that's kind of why I like this conspiracy. Now, the evidence, as no surprise, and as you kind of alluded to, pretty much pure speculation. Nothing has any definitive proof, but the crash itself does have some ir- irregularities Uh, The first peculiar thing actually comes from the local police sheriff or the local police at the station that were initially the first ones on the scene to help out. Um, They noted that the FBI agents arrived on the scene way, way, way faster than they ever normally would. Um, And it kind of makes you wonder why all of a sudden they had a sense of urgency with this particular death of a senator. They said, like, the FBI was there so quickly, and they are not necessarily known for being that uh, that on time. Yeah, um, I mean, you said it did take five hours. So they knew, like, they knew that the plane had crashed five hours before any of the first responders had showed up. So I'm guessing that word got out who was on that plane. So... You would think that they probably have like a home office, maybe in the cities. Yeah. Oh, they're or here Chicago for sure. or whatnot. Um. Now I guess you are right. They didn't. They didn't say if. Obviously, it took five hours to clear enough room to get the rescue crew in there. Yeah. But they didn't state if the FBI agent showed up at the police station, then joined them, or things like that. So again, it's kind of meh. It is a little weird that they showed up quickly, but then again, it's like uh, they have maybe they were bored that day. I don't know. Um, maybe maybe they were on site for the funeral that was going on. Could be. I don't know. Possibly something. I'm just saying, like it's it's one of these things where you got to think of like other things too. Yeah. That yeah. Absolutely. Maybe maybe there's reasons why the FBI was able to get there so quickly. So. Right. Now, uh, some try to speculate that it was actually because of the fog and perhaps the plane had came upon a hill really quickly. Like the fog cleared their vision. They couldn't tell there's a hill there. They tried to pull up really rapidly and thus would cause the plane to stall and crash. That This is kind of a big, big explanation, but there's one big problem with believing that is the propellers were actually still spinning when it crashed. So it couldn't necessarily be that the plane stalled. And from what I was reading, it will stall if you try to pull up too quickly. Some I, mm-hmm. I'm i not really sure exactly how or why. I assume something with the motor, but... Uh, well, it's... Oh, I was just going to say really quick. It's The fact is um, you cause all of the, the fuel to kind of go backwards in the fuel line. Gotcha. So, okay. Yeah, it's um basically all of the G's that you're trying to pull from going down that quickly to going up uh pulls all of the fuel out of the fuel lines. So Gotcha. Okay. So 
that kind of explains that it wouldn't really make sense why the propellers would still be spinning then if the engine had stalled. Um, Now, the angle that the plane crashed is also very interesting because they had gathered that it crashed at about a 30-degree angle, and it's... I looked at a lot of pictures of this. It's not a nosedive, but it's definitely way too sharp to land a plane. So they're not really sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, you definitely you you want to land you want to land a plane horizontal. It's not like a video game where you can just you know turn the crash off and bounce off the ground a couple of times. Yeah, that's uh, so. Whenever when you see like one of these smaller planes landing. You always see them coming like from a long distance away, coming almost just slightly down. Um, basically, like you you roll your flaps up and you just kind of like coast down. You don't have your nose down. What you do is you kind of actually have your nose up a little bit as you like coast in for a landing. Yeah. So if they were trying to land it, they wouldn't be going at 30 degrees unless they thought they were thousands of miles up in the air and not towards the ground so with two pilots though you'd think one of them would be like hey i think we're coming in a little hot here (laughs) yeah exactly we're not combat landing here (laughs) we can can coast into this all right the next possible explanation and i'm gonna openly admit this is very far-fetched but it's fun and it's interesting uh some of the more deeply invested conspiracy theorists believe that his plane might have actually been attacked by some sort of electromagnetic pulse, some sort of radio frequency that disturbed the plane, or a high-energy type of weapon that was able to disable it. Uh, They lean into the possible explanation because not only did Wellstone's plane experience a minor interruption in in its communication, as we kind of talked about, because there was barely any of it, Allegedly, I could I didn't see anybody else saying this, but apparently there's a lot of cell phones experiencing some sort of weird interruption kind of around when the plane uh, was, you know, prior to its crash. So <laughs> so you're saying that 2002 era cell phone technology in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota had some uh, some cell phones that losing connection. That's hey, not a... <laughs> you know what? It is what it is. I'm just going yeah. with the conspiracy theorists here. This is okay. kind of my favorite. This is an alleged quote from a CIA operative who has been involved with many assassinations, uh, currently unnamed, I guess. This is his exact quote after the death of the senator. As I said earlier, having played ball and still playing in some respects... With the current crop of reinvigorated old white men, these clowns are nobody to screw around with. There will be a few more strategic accidents. You can be certain of that. So if this is a real guy, I don't know. This could be a troll on the internet. Mm. Um, I think there is one thing right. I think old politicians can get people killed if they want. Um, Maybe not necessarily other politicians, but people around the world they could probably have them killed if they wanted well especially you're talking about you know these guys came out of the cold war era where the gloves were off all the time right so and i mean even though it was 2002 and you're thinking well you know it's a much softer time you know we weren't even at war with iraq yet we were just barely at war with afghanistan 
uh, in the starting year of the war, which, you know, at the time it was, we had basically won Afghanistan completely by that point. So we thought we were almost done with that war. Right. Um, the thing is a lot of these guys never like, we're not at war. They just kept that mindset as they, you know, they were born into it kind of deal. So, right. Right. And there's uh this is kind of interesting as well in regards to a CIA agent saying that, you know, they kill people for people in power. Um, there's two other little coincidences that kind of uh, take us to the end here. Uh, Paul Wellstone, there was actually another time when Paul Wellstone had an attempted assassination attempt. Uh, Paul had been very vocal about his opposition to Plan Columbia, which was meant to spray large areas of land in Columbia that were suspected of growing plants that uh, make cocaine. So on December 1st, 2000, Paul actually went to Columbia himself to to evaluate the program. Uh, they would go on to discover that someone had actually planted a bomb on whatever in whatever road he traveled on after he left the airport. So somebody Mm. wanted to kill him. They don't know who, but somebody wanted to kill him. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, Columbia was pretty big in cartel, you know, operations back then too. And they were basically fighting the government, I believe at the time. So I wonder if the bomb that they found was actually meant for him or possibly, you know, just kind of a coincidence that in his path, there happened to be a bomb. Obviously it didn't go off. No, no, no. It was just, just kind of a weird, weird thing. Um, Mm. Now they kind of in this conspiracy, they kind of lean on another democratic senatorial candidate that died in a similar fashion to Paul Wellstone Uh, in the year 2000, Mel Carnahan was in a heated election race against Republican John Ashcroft. Uh, roughly about three weeks before his before election day, Mel's plane went down, killing himself, his son, and a advisor, Chris Sifford. Now, the difference was that in Missouri, they aren't allowed to remove a candidate's name from the ballot, even if they're dead. Yep. So they simply allowed Mel's wife, Jean, to run in his place, and she would actually go on to win by about a 2% margin and would end up serving until 2002 when a special election saw her removal for Republican Jim Talent. After his loss, John Ashcroft would become the U.S. Attorney General for George W. Bush, and after 9-11, he was one of the biggest proponents in getting the Patriot Act passed, which we all know now is not great. Yeah, not patriotic at all, basically. <laughs> no. the, it's the uh, the old, uh, I'm trying to think of that name, Carl Rove. It's the old Carl Rove kind of way of doing it, uh, basically where you take something that you want to do, and then you claim that it's the opposite thing. You know, you give it a good name. Um, so it's like, oh, who would, who would vote against the Patriot Act? You... You know, did anyone actually read it? No, it says the Patriot Act. You have to vote for it. Citizens United. It sounds like such a good thing, but it, you know, it's just corporations united. <laughs> so all of that stuff came out of this guy. Yeah. So, yeah. Rove. 
But I I do remember how hilarious it was that um, John Ashcroft lost against the ghost, basically. Yeah. He, lo- he lost against the, the wife of the, the man who had died. So he couldn't even beat a ghost, which is kind <laughs> of a funny thing. The, uh, okay, so the there's one more thing that some people say. Last thing in regards to uh, Paul Wellstone's death, and I'll let Phil take the floor here. Um, some people claim that one of the pilots was borderline senile, um, and that's he didn't realize where he was and he crashed the plane. But again, it's like there's two of them. How does not one of them say something? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, jeez, oh, they're driving. I mean, they're flying around a senator and the senator's family. You would think that the pilots that would be, you know, I don't know if there's like a, um, if these are his regular pilots or if these are just kind of who like the service sent out for that day, if it's that situation. But you would think that they would try to get you know, two very seasoned pilots. They don't want, they don't even want him to have a bumpy ride in this situation. Right. You know? Right. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't really like that one very much, but uh, it's what somebody said. Yeah. I mean, who knows? We didn't really go into the pilot's age or anything like that, their experience level, but overshooting the airport and nosediving into the woods is a little a little weird. I'm guessing that there was some mechanical mixed with pilot error and you also said that there wasn't there was a break in communication between the tower and the plane. So obviously there was there must have been some uh some malfunctioning equipment in either the plane or in the tower. So I'm going to guess obviously maybe if the communication was down possibly other systems might have been affected too. Right, right. So are you in the camp that you don't think the death of Paul uh, had anything to do with the Bush-Cheney administration wanting to invade Iraq? I mean, I don't think that you you can never count out Dick Cheney when it comes to doing bad shit because basically any conspiracy that, you know, talks shit about him, you kind of believe. Bush is a little different. I don't see him as, you know, ordering a hit on anybody. No, uh, no. Uh, honestly, that's why I'm like really saying Dick Cheney's name because I don't yeah. think Bush would have any idea, and I don't think Bush would have went along with this, even though his dad hated this guy. Um, but Cheney, oh, I wouldn't put anything past Cheney. No. I wouldn't put a single fucking thing past Cheney. But yeah, I would say Bush, um, if it was kind of coming out of the White House, I would say Bush didn't probably know anything about it. And not just because, I mean, here's the thing. Everyone always from back then called him, you know, like like he was a dumb person or mentally challenged or something like that. He was just kind of compared to other politicians who seemed really intelligent. He was kind of like a normal dude when it came to intelligence. You know, some words he said wrong and he kind of just went with it. You know, I mean, it's one of those weird things where he was a decently intelligent person, but it kind of really like the media really kind of made him seem like he was a moron, like he wasn't capable of doing this stuff. I'm not really going on with that. I'm saying like the kind of person he kind of showed himself to be. I don't think he would 
order a hit on anyone. But Cheney, no. obviously, yeah. everyone would believe that. So. My, my thing is with Bush, like, yeah, like you said, he's probably just a normal intelligence guy, but I think he could be easily persuaded um, and easily oh, yeah. controlled. Or, or sign something and not know what he's yeah, yeah. exactly signing. Yeah. Or, you know. yeah. So, okay, what do you think? Do you think Cheney, do you have a feeling, do you think this was just a freak accident with a lot of things that just all went wrong at the same time? Or do you think, I, what do you think? I mean, so the time frame that it happened in is awfully suspicious. Um, we were on the road to war. And you have to remember, too, there was a lot of Democrats who voted for the war in Iraq. Not not a ton, but a lot compared to, today, to today's standards. Nowadays, no Democrat votes for a Republican anything. No Republican votes for a Democratic anything. So compared to now, back then, there was quite a bit of Democrats who voted for the war in Iraq. Um, it's kind of hard to say whether that really – I don't really see – any kind of like super secret weapon that we don't even know of now affecting this. Cause we would have, we would know a lot about the weapon that was used back then. Like nowadays, like it would have became public. It would have leaked out by now. So I don't really know if we have those kind of weapons. My, I think my thing was like, um, they could have, somebody could have tampered with that VOR thing and confuse the pilots or something. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's not a yeah. super high-tech weapon. That's simply just recalibrating it to make sure the plane crashed. That would be a very... I would say that would have the highest chance of likelihood. There's a lot of stories about um, kind of like either CIA operations in foreign countries or um, they were called the jackals. Basically, these kind of, you know, super secret off-the-books um, mercenaries pretty much who would go in and do this exact same kind of shit to oust any like you know any politician or any leader who they thought might be communist they thought wasn't going to go along with what they want pro-russia anything like that so there's a there's a shit ton of stories about these accidents happening from you know the jackals or possibly even from the cia um so that would be the most likely thing also though there's a with when it comes to a plane, there's a lot of you know error that can occur. You you know you hire the best people, obviously. You try to make sure the plane is maintained, but still, like shit does happen. Right. So if the thing is, if this plane would have went down and there wasn't a senator on board, would you have ever heard about it? No, probably not. Yeah. Exactly. So I mean, planes. These small. The smaller the plane is, the like the frequency is higher of them going down. So, you know, obviously the big planes almost never go down, but the smaller and smaller you get, the more likelihood that you're going to have a, a plane crash. So. Yeah, I know. I know, right? Isn't that kind of uh, <laughs> strange? I'm guessing that's because they don't check, do safety checks quite as thoroughly <laughs> as a big plane. Yeah, well, you hope that they do, but it's one of those deals too where... Um, the bigger the plane is, the more people you have working on it, the more stop gaps, the more quality control situation. Uh, then you go all the way down to a hobbyist, maybe flying a Cessna or like one of those single prop engine, you know, situations. You probably have one guy 
doing all of the doing all of the work and you just hope that you know he had his coffee that morning yeah so yeah that's scary luckily you and i will never be rich enough to have private planes so we probably won't have to worry about that yep no money no problems so (laughs) all right phil well if anybody else wants to give us their opinion on the death of paul wellstone where can they do that they can hit us up on our email, subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. I uh, love hearing from you guys. It's great to get, you know, all of the possible ideas that you might want us to have uh, for episodes or, you know, just telling us how you think we're doing. It's great. Probably even better way to get a hold of us, though, is through our Instagram, uh, Subliminal Deception Podcast on IG. Uh, really, we've been getting, uh, I can't believe it. It seems like I get pinged every 30 minutes with a new follower so it's been going crazy lately uh thanks for that you know all the likes and everything i have actually gotten more into the habit the past couple of weeks of making sure that i'm posting things so i was uh the holiday season kind of you know took that away but I'm trying to get back into it now so but cody and i also have our own instagrams mine is sdpodphil cody you got one yeah you can follow me on instagram at cody's the bub I haven't been as active recently, but I'll try to get back to you if you send me a message. Uh, last thing we need you guys to do is log on to iTunes, leave the show a five-star review. It doesn't really matter what you say, just preferably five stars. If you're a Spotify listener, real easy. Just hit the follow button. It is apparently like a iTunes reviews and boosts us up the charts, has helps us get more exposure. Thank you to everybody who's taking the time to do that. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, guys.